welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at some of the work of the chaotic wrecking crew that is the GOP of the 118th Congress, including their plan to hold the world economy hostage and weaponize the government against Democrats, all while infighting their way to the 2024 presidential election. Clips today are from the PBS NewsHour, Velshi on MSNBC, Greater Boston, Morning Joe, the broadcast, all in with Chris Hayes, and the damage report, with an additional members-only clip from the gray area. And stay tuned to the end, where I'll discuss how the ideological dividing lines keep getting more complicated. After four days of defeats and deal-making, Republican Kevin McCarthy was elected to the job early this morning on the 15th try. That's the most since before the Civil War. So help you, God. Yes, I do. Congratulations and Godspeed. His victory came during a dramatic and sometimes rancorous session. Jeffries. After he fell one vote short on the 14th try, McCarthy confronted holdouts Matt Gates of Florida and Lauren Boebert of Colorado. Tempers flared. At one point, McCarthy supporter Mike Rogers of Alabama had to be restrained. After winning the post that had eluded him for years, McCarthy outlined a conservative agenda that included investigations of the Biden administration. We will hold the swamp accountable. From the withdrawal of Afghanistan to the origins of COVID and to the weaponization of the FBI. Let me be very clear. We will use the power of the purse and the power of the subpoena to get the job done. Later, he credited a key backer for helping him get across the finish line. I do want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think you should doubt, anybody should doubt his influence. All members-elect will raise their right hand. The election of a speaker cleared the way to formally assemble the 118th Congress as House members took the oath of office. Congratulations. You are now members of the 118th Congress. McCarthy's victory came after a series of concessions that give hardline conservatives greater influence in the House, notably on spending and tax bills. What do McCarthy's prolonged battle and the deals he cut mean for his leadership, for the House, and for the governing of the nation? Sarah Binder is a George Washington University political scientist and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Sarah, one of the things that the uh, that Speaker McCarthy said last night is what we do here today, next week, next month and next year will set the tone for everything that follows. What what tone was set by what happened this week? Well, what we watched play out in front of us uh in levels of detail we're not usually accustomed to on C-SPAN, was a very slim, fractured majority trying to get on the same page. And what we saw was the speaker-to-be, uh, in doubt at times, trying to figure out how much could he give away to his opponents and would they take it? Would they take these concessions that they were demanding and then give him his votes? Um, we'll see those fractures emerge throughout this coming Congress, for sure. In what ways? Tell, look ahead, and in what ways are we going to see those fractures? 
So one of the core issues that divides the holdouts uh, from Speaker McCarthy is the question about the federal budget, federal deficits, and federal debt. And there are two things this Congress, like most Congresses, will have to do. At some point, mostly in the fall, they will need to pass spending bills, get them through the House, the Senate, and the White House, pass spending bills that most recently raise federal spending, both for domestic side and defense side. But his opponents have vowed not to do that. They want to cut. They want to cut both defense spending, which uh, the defense hawks in the Republican Party aren't going to want to do, and they're going to want to severely cut domestic spending. And it's not clear that 218 Republicans even, especially those from swing districts won by President Biden, it's not clear they're going to go along. So how do you keep the government funded and open? Will there be a government shutdown? Do you think any of these concessions may come back to haunt him? Well, I think the key concessions here, first of all, are uh, Speaker McCarthy's willingness and his agreement to put three Freedom Caucus members from the far right of the conference to put them on the Rules Committee, which is an arm of the Republican leadership. That's the committee that decides which bills would go to the floor, under what conditions, will there be amendments, who will offer the amendments. With three Freedom Caucus members on that committee, is going to put them in a position to try to advance their policies, not just to block things on the floor that they've sort of mastered in the past. I think that could come back to haunt uh, Speaker McCarthy. Others will point to this motion to vacate the speakership. Um, that's existed in the past. I, I think uh, McCarthy, it's a thin reed that he's standing on already. And that threat of deposing him, it's going to be uh, put a little more uh, oomph behind those threats. You talk about a slim, fractured majority. I mean, the fact that, that it was just really about 20 members uh, that tied the House up in knots, is that are we going to see more of that? McCarthy comes into the speakership by all accounts quite weakened by what he's given away. And I think that's going to encourage not just the original five holdouts and not merely the 20 uh, who secured some uh, concessions in this deal making over the speakership. I think that will encourage other members of the Republican majority to come forward and to push their perspectives as well. Right? Think about those, you know, one and a half, there's about 18 members who are elected in uh, districts that President Biden won. Those folks aren't going to be that happy lining up behind the agenda of the Freedom Caucus. And that's trouble ahead. That's really trouble ahead for Speaker McCarthy. Newly empowered House conservatives have triggered a high-stakes fight over the debt ceiling. Yesterday, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announced that the U.S. will hit its debt limit on Thursday. She warned House Speaker Kevin McCarthy that it's, quote, critical that Congress act in a timely manner to increase or suspend the debt limit. Republicans in the House, intent on cutting government spending, are coming up with a contingency plan. 
According to the Washington Post, quote, House Republicans are preparing a plan telling the Treasury Department what to do if Congress and the White House don't agree to lift the nation's debt limit later this year. The Post adds that the emerging contingency plan shows how Republicans are preparing to threaten not to lift the nation's debt ceiling without major spending cuts from the Biden administration. If Republicans decide not to lift the ceiling, it will undoubtedly start a fiscal showdown that's going to have big consequences for the American people. Now, it's important to understand the debt ceiling. Here's how it works. The government takes in money through things like taxes and duties, and it spends money on all the things that government spends money on. If in a given year the government spends more than it takes in, that's a deficit. According to the U.S. Treasury Department, in the last 50 years, the federal government's budget has run a deficit all but five times, most recently in 2001. Now, let's look at 2021, the, the, the federal budget for that year. The Congressional Budget Office says the federal government brought in roughly $4 trillion. That year, the government spent $6.8 trillion, creating a deficit, a shortfall, if you will, of nearly $2.8 trillion dollars. Now you take all these deficits and you put them together and that becomes the national debt, which now stands at roughly 31.5 trillion dollars. Now many people validly worry about this debt and how we're going to pay it back. And that's an important consideration. But until we get an answer to that, let's just look at how those deficits and that debt are financed. Where does the money come from for the interest payments and for the repayments of them? comes from bonds issued by the government and then sold to investors. The bond is a promise to pay back a loan at a certain interest rate. The rate is relatively low because a loan made to the United States government is considered the safest investment on the planet. But now, once again, that is at risk. As some Republicans threaten to not allow the debt limit or the amount of money the government can borrow to pay bills it's already incurred to be raised. If they succeed in that effort, the government would have to do what an individual or a company would have to do, reprioritize who gets paid first. And in the case of the U.S. government, interest on those bonds have to be paid first. Because if a payment to a bondholder is missed, the credit rating of the entire United States could drop and the interest rate for borrowing any more money goes up. That could cause inflation as costs get more expensive. It could cause a recession or make a recession that we might be headed into worse. The worst case scenario is that it causes both inflation and a recession, which is a very difficult position to get out of. The idea that a government like a household shouldn't spend more than it takes in is interesting, but it's incomplete because a household is made up of people with a limited time to work. America's an entire economy with a lot of ways to generate income and a lot of time to pay it off. It's not that governments should spend without any regard to how and when their debt will be paid. It's just that the calculus for a mature, strong economy cannot be fairly compared to you and your personal financial obligations. Now, I know you're thinking we've been here before many times and we never fail to actually get the debt ceiling raised. This is all a game of chicken. And you may be right. I hope you're right. But if you're wrong because you're underestimating the resolve of those Republicans who are prepared to burn the house down, we could all be headed for real trouble. What's different about this time is that while inflation is coming down, it's still three times as high as we'd like it to be. And that's okay because the Fed can keep raising interest rates to fight inflation, except there are real fears that all the effort that the Fed is putting into fighting inflation could have the effect of slowing the economy down too much, triggering a recession. That's a real possibility. 
And here's the problem with having inflation and a recession at the same time. You fight inflation by raising interest rates. You discourage people from spending. You fight recession by lowering interest rates and encouraging people to spend. But you can't raise and lower interest rates at the same time. If we get ourselves into that position, we could be in for a very difficult few years economically. Years in which interest rates are high, economic growth is low, home prices collapse, jobs are lost, wages drop, and your 401k suffers. That's what Republicans who threaten not to raise the debt ceiling are really playing with, not their political futures, as much as your and the country's prosperity. Republican officials are insisting on deep cuts in federal spending in exchange for raising that borrowing limit. And that's something Democrats in Congress and the White House say they're unwilling to consider. It is something that should be happen- that should be done without conditions. There should be we should not be negotiating around it. Uh, it is the it is the duty, the basic duty of Congress to get that done. So where does that leave us now? The senior senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, joins me now. Welcome, Senator. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to see you. So the White House says it won't negotiate on this. Yep. Your colleague Joe Manchin has proposed dealing with it by creating new committees to propose spending cuts and and have these sort of expedited to the floor. Who's got the, the better idea? Look, I want to think about it this way. This is a manufactured crisis. The debt ceiling is not real in the sense that it has something to do with uh, constraining spending. Uh, We've already authorized all that spending. This is about the United States following through on its legal obligations. But here's the deal. The Republicans don't really care about the debt ceiling. And you know how I know that? I know that for multiple reasons. What they're really trying to do is make sure that the wealthy and the well-connected just don't pay their fair share in taxes. First bill out of the hopper for Republicans was to cut funding to the IRS so the IRS doesn't have Mm -hmm. money to go after wealthy tax cheats. Second thing they put right directly into the rules for the House this time around is if anybody wants to do any spending, no, 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 because it'll add to the debt ceiling, but if you want to cut taxes for billionaires and giant corporations, you can add to the national debt to do that. Look, our problem is a problem on the revenue side. It's a problem that the wealthy and the well-connected are not paying a fair share in taxes. So we want to solve this problem. If the Republicans are serious about the national debt, then fine. Let's stitch up some of the corporate tax loopholes. Let's make billionaires pay a fair share. We can fix this problem. Well, unsurprisingly, I'm sure to you and others, the Republicans don't see it that way. Let's listen to a a brief summary from the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, how he views this issue. But if you had a child and you gave them a credit card and they kept raising it and they hit the limit, so you just raised it again, clean increase, and again and again, Would you just keep doing that or would you change the behavior? Your response? Uh, That is like the dumbest analogy I think (laughs) I've ever heard. Uh, Excuse me. The national debt is not like a credit card. It does not authorize spending. 
We vote as a Congress on spending, and that's what we've done in Democratic administrations, in Republican administrations. The better way to understand what Kevin McCarthy is saying is after you've run up the bill, maybe you could just tell all your creditors you're actually not going to pay them. That's the crisis he's trying to manufacture. And what he wants to do is make absolutely sure that the rich folks don't pay any more, but that we impose taxes on everyone else. Look, the problem we've got right now is a problem of an imbalance between revenues and spending. And it's not right just to say, oh, I know, let's do cuts and not take a look at the revenue side of this. Besides, look what happened the last time the Republicans manufactured this crisis, back in 2011. And they got a bunch of cuts in spending. And what was the consequence? The consequence was that they kept unemployment elevated, growth was suppressed, and a lot of people across this country felt that pain. And why? so that billionaires and giant corporations could keep escaping paying the taxes they owe. And that's just not right. This isn't about, do we need to make a cut here or a cut there? It's really about who pays, the rich or everybody else. I would love somebody to ask Kevin McCarthy. I'd love somebody to ask these Republicans who were suddenly born again, uh, balanced budgeters. Uh, I, I'd love to ask them, where were they when Donald Trump was president? Where were they when they controlled the House? Where were they when they controlled the Senate? Where were they when they controlled the White House? Where were they when they controlled all three? Let me tell you where they were. They were right there, pigs at the trough, increasing the deficit and America's federal debt to record levels in 2017, in 2018, Donald Trump again in 2019, in 2020. Kevin McCarthy never said anything like this in 2017 or 18 or 19 or 20. None of these backbenchers said anything about this in 2017, 28. How do I know? Because I kept talking about it. And no Republican wanted to talk about it. I even talked to Mark Meadows when he was ahead of uh, the Freedom Caucus. I said, Mark, this is what you're supposed to do. Stop chasing conspiracy theories. Work on a plan to balance the budget. Work on the plan to rein in spending. Because if you don't do it when you have a president in the White House, you're going to have no credibility when you have a Democrat in the White House. Why in the hell would any Democrat... Listen to these people acting like they're, they're, they're fiscally responsible when we saw the deficit explode when Republicans ran Washington under George W. Bush. And it's exploded again at two record levels uh, under Donald Trump. This is going to end really badly for Republicans. They can figure out how to negotiate a peaceful way out of this now. Or they can do it after the economy crashes down, but the Democrats aren't going to move on this, and they certainly shouldn't move on this because this is pure political posturing. Yeah, and I think that's one of the really one of the great lessons of the last what let's say new millennial politics, Joe. Like after two thousand, right now that we've had we had two terms of George W. Bush and we had one term of Donald Trump. Whatever Republicans once thought about the deficit, whatever they once thought about spending, about fiscal discipline, about reforming entitlements, about all the things that back in your day at least people. Uh, both paid lip service to and occasionally voted on, they no longer have any credibility on those issues. And what's pretty clear is that Republicans, as, as, as become the 
the coin, the, 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 the kind of phrase that sums it all up. They care about deficits when Democrats are in office. They don't care about deficit at all when Republicans are in the at White House. And, and every Democrat and every thinking person, you just can't look at the record of, of the red ink spilled in the Bush and Trump administrations, uh, and, and particularly when Republicans were in control, and not draw that conclusion. I think Democrats, finally, there's not very much of a caucus anymore in the Democratic Party for pretending the Republican Party is serious about this stuff. And the number is $7.8 trillion added to the debt during the Trump years, thanks in large part to Ooh. those tax cuts. We know how this ends, right? You've got four or five, six extremists in the House of Representatives that are willing to wreck the economy because they don't care. They'll just raise more money off of wrecking the economy, destroying the economy. Um, you've got Democrats running the, the Senate. You have Democrats running the White House. Uh, you've got Democrats, uh, you know, 212 votes in the House of Representatives. There's no way that they're going to fold to a couple of extremists. So what does that mean? We're going to get pushed up against a deadline. Things are going to melt down. And then you're going to have Republicans folding, just like the Wall Street Journal said. You know they will, especially the Republicans that got elected in Biden's district. So, again, this is all gesturing. This is all farce. But the problem is... They could wreck the economy. They could, they could cost three million job people to lose their jobs. They could cost people uh, billions of dollars in 401k accounts. Like this, this is gesturing with a catastrophic price potentially. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com support. And in case you aren't familiar with what's been going around in Republican circles, here is an awesome montage uh, Ashley put together, a reminder of their actual positions on entitlement reform. Where should those budget cuts come from right now? Medicare and Social Security, the White House insists Republicans want to cut. What cuts do you want? Well, to let me be clear about that. And I've been clear many times. No, we're not talking about that. And to really be able to do this right, I'm not going to negotiate this in the press. Entitlements are going to consume the budget. Medicare and Social Security and other entitlement programs are worth saving or going to consume the debt. So entitlement reform is a must for us to not become Greece. Recently put out an 11-point plan to rescue America, two of the big points of which are, quote, all Americans should pay some income tax. It also says all federal legislation sunsets in five years. So that would raise taxes on half of Americans and potentially sunset programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Why would you propose something like that in an election year? Sure. Well, John, that's, of course, the Democrat talking points. It's a no, no, it's plan. in the plan. It's in well, the plan. It, but, it, here's, here, but here's, let's think about reality for a second. It's First of all, let's talk but, about but, but Medicare. Senator, but Senator, hang on. John. So it's not a Democratic talking point. It's in the plan. I'm here right now to tell you one thing that you probably haven't ever heard from a politician. It will be my objective to phase out Social Security, nice. to pull it up by the roots and get rid of it. 
spending. If it was if it was Mac Gates, I, I think that we do need reforms to Social Security and Medicare. I understand politically enough people. But that can come later. That, 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 get that's the not going to happen now. Right. Medicaid and don't need to have. By it, the way, it. Medicaid right. should not be a sacred cow. Big time. Yeah, there's meat on the bones. He said earlier, and he's not the only ones. I mean, you had great stuff of Rick Scott. It's in the you could you could look at it. He wants to make it something that has to be voted on every few years, which is not something you do to something you consider to be sacred that cannot be challenged. And jumping ahead, Mike Pence just last week said they should privatize Social Security. And of course, Matt Gates has been attacking these programs as well. And by the way, I understand that the mainstream media is going to be focusing on Social Security and Medicare. And many people are obviously on that and they're very important programs, but they also routinely talk about cutting Medicaid. And that's the one that we're supposed to not pay any attention to because those people are poor. Screw them. We don't actually care about what happens to them. But anyway, the idea that people like Jonathan Carl would be running cover for the Republicans going into a negotiation where Kevin McCarthy is saying, no, I am not going to agree that we won't be talking about those. That's not how we're going to negotiate. It is super clear what they actually want. Foundering presidential campaign has left a power vacuum within the Republican Party. And a flood of conservatives have rushed in to fill it, each claiming they should be the next face of the movement. All the different factions of the party are now openly brawling with each other in a battle royale playing out in Washington and in the shadow Republican 2024 primary. Earlier this week, Donald Trump took a typically bombastic shot at a potential rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. In a series of posts to his knockoff Twitter platform, Trump shared a photo purportedly depicting DeSantis, then a high school teacher, seemingly attended a party with a group of female high school students. In the post, Trump spread claims without evidence that DeSantis groomed his students, which is to say, attempted to lay the groundwork to later sexually abuse them. That's the claim that's being made. NBC News has not verified the photo in question. DeSantis has not commented on it. We reached out to DeSantis' office, have not heard back. Obviously, Donald Trump's a pathological liar with a long history of smearing his opponents with false allegations. I have to say, there is some irony here, as we have covered on the show. Some forces on the political right have become increasingly brazen about baselessly smearing their opponents on the left as child abusers and groomers. These ugly smears, which have no place in our political system, are often directed at members of the LGBT community, but by no means exclusively. In fact, last year, DeSantis's then press secretary, Christina Pushaw, tweeted in support of his controversial bill banning discussion of gender identity and sexuality in Florida classrooms by saying the bill that liberals inaccurately called Don't Say Gay would be more accurately described as an anti-grooming bill. And quote, if you're against the anti-grooming bill, you are probably a groomer or at least you don't denounce the grooming of four to eight-year-old children. Those attacks were coming from DeSantis's own press secretary in support of legislation DeSantis himself championed. Now, that, uh, that legislation was predicated on the idea that simply discussing banal facts about identity is tantamount to child abuse. But Ron DeSantis, well, he messed around and found out. He's now getting a taste of his own medicine. The Florida governor's low energy response to getting smeared demonstrates just how unwilling some Republicans still are to challenge Trump directly. I spend my time delivering results for the people of Florida and fighting against Joe Biden. That's how I spend my time. I 
don't spend my time trying to smear other Republicans. So Donald Trump posts something on his knockoff platform saying Ron DeSantis is sexually grooming underage girls. Ron DeSantis says, I don't spend my time smearing other Republicans. We're early. Okay, this is just the beginning of a very long primary season. Now, elsewhere in the Republican field, other likely candidates are also beefing. Former Trump Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and former Trump U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley are both taking public shots at one another as they vie for the Trumpism without Trump lane in next year's primaries. The chaos extends well beyond the presidential primary. In the House, of course, Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who barely won that title at all after his members of his conference revolted, can barely keep his own party in line. Heck, he couldn't even prevent his MAGA troll caucus from openly heckling the President of the United States during Tuesday's State of the Union address. Meanwhile, one of the most infamous members of McCarthy's House, in fact, we have to say the most infamous, New York Republican Congressman George Santos has inspired a mutiny within the party. Republican Senator Mitt Romney saying publicly he does not think the ethically and factually challenged freshmen should be representing the Republican Party in Congress. Yesterday, House Democrats filed a resolution to expel Santos, which, this is important, New York Republican Congressman Mark Malinaro told a reporter he supports. Now, this kind of fractious infighting, very public, is sort of the kind of behavior you expect in the House, particularly after that week of speaker votes. But in the Senate, oh, in the Senate, the infighting is out in the open in a way I really have never seen before. Earlier this month, you'll remember, Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell unceremoniously booted two Republicans, Florida's Rick Scott and Utah's Mike Lee, off the prestigious Commerce Committee. Apparently, it was an act of retaliation after Scott challenged McConnell for the leadership spot and Lee supported him. And Senator Scott doesn't seem happy. How's your relationship with Senator Mitch McConnell? I work with all the Republican senators. I work with some of the Democrat senators. I'm going to work hard to represent my state. And I tell everybody, I'm going to represent the state of Florida. That's what I got elected to do. I, I mean, look, I, you can vote any way you want. I'm going to vote for the citizens of Florida. But are you guys cool with each other? Are, are you talking? Well, he kicked me. He just kicked me off a committee. I mean, so that was pretty petty. Now, try not be, to be distracted by Rick Scott's incredible amounts of charisma. This feud between Senator Scott and Leader McConnell extends all the way back to March of last year. That was when Scott issued the plan to rescue America, which included the now famous proposals to sunset all federal legislation, including Social Security, Medicare in five years. McConnell was furious with Scott and made no secret of what he thought about the plan Scott had proposed. If we're fortunate enough to have the majority next year, I'll be the majority leader. I'll decide in consultation with my members what to put on the floor. We will not have as part of our agenda a bill that raises taxes on half of the American people and sunsets Social Security and Medicare within five years. That will not be part of a Republican Senate majority agenda. Yeah, that's Mitch McConnell. That's not Joe Biden, the State Union. That's Mitch McConnell at the press conference. And fun fact, Rick Scott also spoke at that press conference where McConnell declared his plan dead on arrival. Now, fast forward to the State of the Union this week, where President Joe Biden basically just repeated what Mitch McConnell said, calling out Scott's plan, using it to make Republicans say on live television that Medicare and Social Security are off the table for cuts. Now Rick Scott is trapped. No one from his party is coming to help him because he basically handed Joe Biden and Democrats the perfect ammunition against Republicans. 
Scott's lame attempts to defend himself have also failed, including publishing a tweet that confirms he proposed exactly what Biden said. And now Joe Biden is just twisting the knife at Biden's event yesterday in Tampa, Florida, Scott's home state. Every seat in the audience had a brochure on it showing Rick Scott's plan. And today, when asked about Biden's speech, State of the Union speech, Leader McConnell made some remarks that for him are about as explicit and cutting as you can get. Well, unfortunately, that was the Scott plan. That's not a Republican plan. That was the Rick Scott plan. There were no plans to raise taxes on happy American people or to sunset Medicare or Social Security. And it's just a bad idea. Uh, I think it will be a challenge for him to deal with this in his own re-election in Florida, a state with more elderly people than any other state in America. A challenge to deal with in his own re-election in Florida. McConnell could have just not said anything. He could have said Joe Biden was lying or exaggerating. Instead, he called Rick Scott out by name, said it was a bad idea, and hung him out to dry. The core conflict here, when you take a step back, the reason you're seeing this, you know, Trump and DeSantis and the House Republican Caucus and now Scott and McConnell, they're all fighting each other, is that when it comes down to it, what do they stand for? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you want to do, guys? What's your deal? What's your agenda? Getting rid of the most significant social insurance programs of the 20th century is not popular, but it has been a shared goal for many people inside the conservative movement. But what they actually want the government to do for people is a question they do not have very good or particularly popular answers to. In fact, the only thing they do seem intent on making sure of is that their political enemies are punished. The title of this hearing is called Hearing on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. As Congressman, Democratic Congressman from Maryland, Jamie Raskin, noted during the Thursday hearing. Millions of Americans already feared that weaponization is the right name for this special subcommittee. Not because weaponization of the government is its target, but because weaponization of the government is its purpose. What's in a name? Well, everything is here. The odd name of the Weaponization Subcommittee constitutes a case of pure psychological projection. When former President Donald Trump and his followers accuse you of doing something, they're usually telling you exactly what their own plans are. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, This uh, hearing, this committee, according to TPM's David Kurtz, is a full frontal attack on the on the rule of law masquerading as a probative investigation, period, end of sentence, he writes. (laughs) Well said. You'll see a lot of news coverage, he says, of this hearing that will serve to amplify and legitimize it. Well, we will see. House Republicans could run the Barnum and Bailey circus into a Capitol hearing, uh, Capitol Hill hearing room. And political reporters would still cover it as a hearing because it's in a hearing room. Duh. What are you, stupid? That's what he says. Just remember, Kurtz writes, the Justice Department under Donald Trump was more politicized, the extent of which we are still learning, than at any time since Watergate. And the Trump play adopted in full by the House GOP now is to accuse your opponents of exactly the wrongdoing that you are committing. It's an obvious and easy to follow playbook, he writes. Don't be fooled. 
To that end, perhaps we will have more coverage of Thursday's hearing in uh, fu- on future broadcasts. But on Wednesday, the much-hyped House Oversight Committee hearing targeting Twitter apparently did not go as well as Republicans had planned. In fact, not by a long shot. In fact, it backfired in sometimes spectacular fashion, as a CNN business headline declared. This hearing was based on the phony Sturm and Drong that was caused by uh, what Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, has dubbed the Twitter files when he opened up the social media company's internal messaging system recently to a few selected theoretical journalists to write stories about whatever they found in hopes of backing up the idea that poor Republicans somehow, who call themselves conservatives, were not only mistreated by Twitter up until Musk purchased it, but somehow Twitter actually stole the 2020 presidential election from Donald Trump. Because for about two days back in October of 2020, they prevented the widespread sharing of an article by the Rupert Murdoch-owned New York Post, citing what was purported to be uh, information found in an abandoned laptop belonging to Hunter Biden, the president's son. Actually, he wasn't the president at the time. Uh, but Joe Biden's son, and it included all sorts of scandalous personal emails that was found on this laptop. This all happened when the FBI had been warning social media networks in advance of the 2020 election that they expected another hack and dump operation by Russia in the lead up to that 2020 election, just like the one that we saw before the 2016 election, when the DNC and Hillary Clinton related emails were stolen and dumped to WikiLeaks for publication. When the Hunter Biden laptop story broke in uh, early October of 2020, Twitter and other social media sites did not know how to deal with it at the time. And they prevented it, at least for a day or so, from wide circulation while they tried to figure out how to best proceed, especially since they had been given warnings by the FBI about something like this that could happen. So this is what Republicans are now saying resulted in a rigged election for Joe Biden. This, those about two days when the story was still available to be read at the New York Post and everywhere else, but it wasn't allowed to be widely circulated with links on Twitter in early October, October for about two days or so only this about three weeks before the actual November election. This is the great Twitter FBI theft of the 2020 election that you may have heard about as the Trumpers are now pretending. The once credible journalist Matt Taibbi used Using selective files from the internal Twitter archives, he pretended to make these claims that somehow the government, apparently, by the way, Donald Trump's own FBI at the time, was somehow censoring Twitter. These knuckleheads claim that the FBI paid millions of dollars to Twitter to censor stuff that reflected poorly somehow on Joe Biden. This is Donald Trump's FBI doing this. And uh, they were you know, paid to ban users who supported Donald Trump. But that's actually not what Taibbi's selective quoted 
internal emails actually showed for those who bothered to read them, as I did, and I suspect many right-wingers did not, or they did not care about the actual facts they found there. Twitter, in fact, did receive money from the FBI, but that was money that the FBI had to pay them, according to the law, because it was in exchange for responding, for Twitter responding to various unrelated requests for documents and information regarding crimes and such. And even Taibbi himself said that he found no evidence of the government forcing Twitter to censor anything. And yet, here we are with Republicans now pretending to be the victims of a grand government censorship scandal and conspiracy and a First Amendment violation, even though Twitter, by the way, is a private company. It's allowed to censor anything it likes. And making it all even more absurd, as the GOP House hearings revealed on Wednesday, the government actually did tried to censor Twitter after all, but failed. It turns out that the Donald Trump White House did the very thing that these so-called conservatives have loudly claimed without evidence that the so, so-called deep state did. Yes, the Trump administration actually pressured Twitter directly to censor and remove unfavorable content, including one notable example that came up near the end of Wednesday's hearings, finding that the Trump White House tried to get Twitter to take down a tweet back in 2019 by a model and TV personality who called Donald Trump a name, a name that I don't think I can say on FCC radio. Yeah, you probably should. Probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. But his uh, fifis were so hurt that the White House tried to muscle Twitter into getting rid of this tweet. They declined to do so. They left it up. But there's your example of the weaponization of the federal government. you were having a conversation with this uh, constituent mm -hmm. uh, St. Croix and they said, um, what's the deal with this committee? What would be your like 60 second, 30 second version of what this committee is? Sure. That this committee is the Republican Party's attempt to utilize the congressional process to air previous grievances and to set the stage of, for conspiracy theories for the 2024 election. That's fully what it is to you. That's exactly what this is. There is, you know, I, I was I was struck yesterday by how why there was like Ron they Johnson was mad place. about ivermectin, yes. Yes. Um, which was the you know the 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 tapeworm drug mm -hmm. that a bunch of conservatives got super uh, into for prescribing off label for COVID, and then Tulsi Gabbard was talking about wokeism. I, I, I but I, <laughs> it was a little unclear. Like, what's the actual thing here? Well, in this hearing, I, I couldn't figure it out myself because they talked to, oh, they talked about the Twitter, Twitter files, right? Yes, they did. Which is their new thing, uh, the new rabbit hole that they want everyone to go down into. Uh, Grassley was talking about Hunter Biden and his laptop, mm -hmm. and that kept being repeated throughout the hearing. It is every grievance, every conspiracy theory that the GOP has being brought out and kind of offered up for their audience to say, which one of these would you like us to go into for the next two years? So you pointed out in the clip we just played of a real, a, a possible threat, right? Which yes. is essentially using it as a tool of essentially obstruction. Mm -hmm. um, 
this is the Washington Post reporting on some of the requests that are made to the Justice Department that Jim Jordan, who chairs the committee, uh, requests the Justice Department include and ask for documents and information related to the court-authorized search of Mar-a-Lago, which also was executed as part of the ongoing probe into the former president's mishandling of classified information. What You're a member of Congress, right? So you understand these sort of branch equities, mm-hmm. which is that you don't want the executive just telling Congress to, like, go take a long walk off a short pier. At the same time, it does seem important to protect the integrity of the investigations. How do you square that tension? Sure, of course. Us lawyers talk about this notion of accommodation, where Congress will request information and the executive branch, whichever branch it is, will say, let's see how we can give this to you and then block off areas and say, you know, we're actually doing an investigation on this. This is a criminal matter. Might we just inform you of where we are? And after the criminal matter has been resolved or reaches a head, then we will brief you in full on that particular matter. Now, Jim Jordan has not bothered with any of that. As opposed to, and my understanding is, that was something that the January 6th committee, other oversight committees under Democrats control did do. There was quite a bit of attempts at accommodation before they got to subpoenas generally. Definitely. And that's how Congress has operated up until this group of individuals that we have that are on the, you know, within the first month of Congress, he's issuing subpoenas. And what he is saying is, oh, well, we were looking into this for the last two, three years. That does not mean that you can then all of a sudden, as soon as you grab the gavel, just throw out subpoenas willy nilly like that doesn't have any import to it. You are he is uh, devaluing the institution of Congress. There are serious issues that Americans are concerned with, and there are serious oversight areas and investigations that we do need to go into, that we do need to ensure that the integrity of the FBI, DOJ, and all of these agencies is being run properly, and Congress does have authority over that. But when you cast this wide net for any conspiracy theory that you want, that erodes even more America's already shaky feelings and lack of confidence. Let me push on this a little bit on this, on the Hunter Biden. So Hunter Biden was issued subpoenas. His lawyers wrote back, and I don't know if it was from this committee or from oversight. I forget what it was was from oversight. oversight. Um, Wrote back saying, basically, there's no proper legislative purpose here. Mm. We're we're not going to comply. That seems a place where, you know, this the notion of upholding the compelled power of Congress does seem an important institutional equity, no matter the party. What do you think? Sure. And I'm sure that there will be some back and forth between uh, Hunter Biden's attorneys and counsel uh, in, in Congress, and they will probably work out some arrangement somewhere down the line. And that's something that happens even in civil matters as, right. as well as criminal matters. What are the confines? What exactly do you want this for? How can we give you the information that you're looking at? And then, unfortunately, Chris, what's going to happen is they're going to get the information. They may not find what they want, and they're still going well, to say that is, there's a conspiracy. This is the thing that I find really, I mean, with Benghazi, right? Let's right. go back to Benghazi, which seems in some ways the model here. And they did like, you know, with Benghazi, the, 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 the basic central thing that happened, which is that these four Americans died and it was mm-hmm. awful, right? Mm-hmm. At least I understood like the core of the thing. Sure. The story was that there was malfeasance or incompetence or a cover up mm-hmm. about the malfeasance and incompetence. Mm-hmm. In this case, I don't even get what the thing is. Like, what's the scandal? Well, I still can't. You can't even name it. So the scandal is and the thing is, is that we conservative GOP 
Trump followers don't like people impeding Donald Trump. And we are going to fight tooth and nail. So it flows from that to you. That's what it flows out of is you have uh, now you're no longer just investigating. You're no longer just arresting uh, inner city youth. You're actually coming after us for saying white supremacist uh, insurrection, seditious, treasonous matters. How dare you? We're going to start an investigation against you, the government. For coming after us. Right. This idea of the weaponization is a way of describing what the- they're doing. <laughs> right. Yes. It's aspirational. Yes. Exactly. It's a mirror. Just to give you a small sense of some of the buffoonery at this hearing coming from the Republican side of the committee room. Mr. Chairman, it's clear conservative voices are being silenced on social media and in the, in the mainstream. I, I appreciate this hearing. I might also suggest we look into holding one on DirecTV, Newsmax, and OAN. You, ladies and gentlemen, interfered with the United States of America 2020 presidential election, knowingly and willingly. That's the bad news. It's going to get worse because this is the investigation part. Later comes the arrest part. Your attorneys are familiar with that. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to spend five hours with these ladies and gentlemen doing depositions surely yet to come. Uh, You go, Congressman. Uh, uh, meanwhile, back here in the world of reality, in fact, there there will be no such arrests yet to come of former Twitter employees. Sorry to disappoint you there, boys. In the uh, lengthy hearing on Wednesday, however, former Twitter executives explained why a 48-hour hold was placed on promotion of a single new article on Twitter. And remember, it's just 48 hours. It went back up on Twitter right after that. Actually, it never came down on Twitter. That's the thing. They just wouldn't allow it to be uh, shared, retweeted, and so forth. Yeah, they didn't even remove the links, as I understand it. But uh, this situation was instituted in part because they had to make a very fast decision. They had limited information at the time, right before the election, a month or so before, and in part because it also included non-consensual publication of nude photos of Hunter Biden. Ranking uh, Democratic member on the GOP-led panel the uh, is uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, again, of Maryland. He contrasted Joe Biden's wildly successful State of the Union address on Tuesday night, detailing a huge list of accomplishments over the past two years with what Republicans are now trying to do, their current agenda to investigate allegations that Twitter's content moderation policies somehow suppressed right-wing voices. We return not to focus on advancing this robust agenda of progress, but instead to take up an authentically trivial pursuit, all based on the obsessive victimology of right-wing politics in America. The majority has called a hearing to revisit a two-year-old story about a private editorial decision by Twitter not to allow links to a single New York Post article made for a two-day period that had no discernible influence on anyone or anything. The New York Post published the article on its own pages, and it was carried by lots of other media outlets. It was widely discussed, including on Twitter itself, even during the brief moment in time 
when links weren't provided, and it was a fixture in right-wing media for the next three weeks before the election. I think even the chairman and other members of this committee were out on TV and social media talking about it. But instead of letting this trivial pursuit go, my colleagues have tried to whip up a faux scandal about this two-day lapse in their ability to spread Hunter Biden propaganda on a private media platform. Silly does not even begin to capture this obsession. In America, private media companies can decide what to publish or how to curate content however they want. If Twitter wants to have nothing but tweets commenting on New York Post articles run all day, it can do that. If it makes such tweets mentioned in the New York Post uh, never see the light of day, they can do that too. That's what the First Amendment means. Twitter can ban Donald Trump for inciting violent insurrection against the union as he was uh, uh, impeached by the House of Representatives and his 57 of 100 senators found he did. And it can also try to resurrect his political career. Those decisions, however heroic or imbecilic you think they might be, are protected by the First Amendment in the United States of America. Rather than conspiring to suppress right-wing mega speech, as my colleagues astonishingly claim, Twitter and other media companies knowingly facilitated Trump's spread of disinformation and gave voice to his followers' glorification of violence and calls for civil war. That was constitutional law professor Jamie Raskin, congressman from Maryland at the House Oversight Committee on Wednesday. Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio tried to argue that the FBI had notified Twitter about some postings that violated its terms of service. In some cases, Twitter took down the posts and others they didn't, according to uh, former head of trust and safety, Yoel Roth, who uh, one of the witnesses on the panel on Wednesday at Wednesday's hearings. Uh, he told Jim Jordan that, no, he did not believe receiving a request to uh, review material from the government amounted to a First Amendment violation in any way. In the cases referred to here, this would have been Donald Trump's FBI, don't forget, sending requests for review to Twitter. This was his FBI back in 2020, which uh, Democratic Congressman Jerry Connolly of Virginia noted when bringing up evidence showing that then-President Trump frequently pressured Twitter himself to moderate content, whereas neither private citizen nor President Joe Biden ever has. My, 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 what happens when you hold a hearing and you can't prove your point? <laughs> it's wrong for government to call Twitter and say, take down a tweet. Did I hear that correct, Mr. Roth? That was my understanding, yes. Yeah. So on May 27th, 2020, President Donald J. Trump tweeted, and I quote, Republicans feel that social media platforms totally silence conservatives. We will strongly regulate, he went on to say, or close them down before we ever allow this to happen, unquote. It's appropriate for the president of the United States to direct or otherwise influence a social media company to take down its content? I think it's a very slippery slope. Mr. Roth, Ms. Gaddy, Mr. Baker, any evidence that Joe Biden's ever done that? Certainly none that I'm aware of, no. I don't recall anything like that. There's no evidence he's ever done that, but there's plenty of evidence Donald J. Trump tried to do that. And um, if we're going to have a hearing about the misuse of social media 
and the intrusion of government in the content on social media, we've got an environment-rich target, but it's not Joe Biden. It's Donald J. Trump, and of course, we don't want to talk about that. Finally, for now, freshman Congressman Maxwell Frost of Florida, the youngest member of Congress, just elected at, I think he's 25 years old. He called out Republicans for the real reason for holding this ridiculous hearing. We get it. My Republican colleagues wish that the Hunter Biden story would have helped them win the 2020 election. And that didn't happen. And so they're angry about it. And that's the point of this hearing. And so I want to say to my colleagues, don't worry. There's still many platforms you can spread disinformation on, Parler, uh, Truth Social, that have questionable editorial policies but aren't here today. Yeah. Uh, And you can also, by the way, spread that crap on Twitter still today, now that Elon Musk owns it, and now that Donald Trump is uh, welcome back onto Twitter for all the lies he wants. I believe it was not uh, long thereafter uh, Congressman Frost's uh, uh, thoughts there when one of the uh, former Twitter employees revealed that that tweet from Chrissy Teigen, that model with content that I can't share on <laughs> FCC radio, calling Trump a name or two, which the then White House called Twitter to demand they take down the very thing that Republicans we're trying but failing to claim somehow that uh, the d- liberal deep state and the federal government was actually doing. Happily, uh, Twitter did not take that tweet down, but that was just uh, about the only example of violations of the First Amendment that Republicans were able to shake out of this silly hearing when you had a president of the United States actually calling and demanding that tweets be taken down, that tweets be censored, that the right to free speech be removed. Anyway, there was much more uh, at this hearing, including some stuff from uh, from right wingers that make them look really, really dumb. I won't torture you uh, for now with that. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. But um, uh, well, but I, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just want to say that that I think that it is a real shame that apparently we're going to have to spend a lot of time debunking Republican disinformation in the well, coming months and weeks. And yeah. Years. But you know what? Whenever they have these hearings, I, you know, even playing just a little bit of it there, I, hopefully that gives you an idea of what is coming out of these so-called hearings by these by the Republican majority in the House and how ridiculous it all is and how dumb it ends up making them look. We've just heard clips today, starting with the PBS NewsHour explaining the fallout of McCarthy making promises to the extreme right in order to be elected speaker. Ali Velshi on MSNBC laid out the consequences of the threat of defaulting on the nation's debts. Greater Boston spoke with Senator Elizabeth Warren about why it's easy to tell that Republicans don't care about the debt. Morning Joe did much the same thing by referencing the Republicans' record through the Bush and Trump years. 
The damage report looked at the Rick Scott agenda for slashing and burning basically everything good the government does. All in with Chris Hayes looked at the infighting of Republicans in Congress and 2024 presidential hopefuls amid a lack of a real agenda. And the broadcast in two parts, along with another segment from All In, looked at the new GOP committee on weaponizing the government. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from the gray area zooming out to discuss the brokenness of our institutions and the need to reassess what can be salvaged and what needs to be rebuilt. The debate that I find myself most drawn to is a debate about our institutions and about the viability of them and the health of them. The two sides that I saw emerging, I roughly call brokenists and status quoists. And I, I hope that I express sympathy and interest in both arguments because I feel drawn to both sides. To hear that and have all of our bonus contents delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now for some final thoughts of mine, there were three unrelated clips in the show today that I think are actually more connected than than they may appear at first glance. The first was from Joe Scarborough on MSNBC. The second was part of the discussion of the broadcast talking about the weaponization of the government committee. And the third was the members bonus clip discussing the topic of broken institutions. Joe Scarborough, for anyone who doesn't know, is a former Republican congressman. I first came across him on MSNBC in the early 2000s when he was cheerleading the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And even though he's been in the anti-Trump camp all along, you know, for the past few years, he's definitely not a traditional choice for best of left. The next point I'm highlighting is Brad Friedman discussing the sadly untrustworthy reporting of Matt Taibbi, who used to be a very trusted journalist on the left, also back in the 2000s, particularly on the banking system and financial crash. And the final clip that only the members heard was discussing broken institutions and making the point about the value of cross-partisan conversations. One person is described as being better able to talk across the partisan divide with people who agree that our institutions are broken than with those who align ideologically but think our institutions are healthy. In my experience, that's like the difference between people like me who may agree grudgingly that the institution of Obamacare is technically better than the previous status quo, but still think it's a horribly flawed system, and those who hail it as an accomplishment of Barack Obama and the Democrats, uh, which must be defended against nearly all criticism. To me, that argument is ridiculous and is a conversation killer, whereas someone who agrees with me that our healthcare system is broken but has wildly different ideas of how to fix it could actually be someone who's easier to have a conversation with than the alternative. Now, I'm connecting these cases, Matt Taibbi, Joe Scarborough, and the reframing of our politics outside the partisan divide, but rather along the do-you-think-things-are-functional-or-not divide, to highlight elements of a sort of political realignment that I think we're in the middle of right now. Taibbi is definitely not a lone oddball. He is representative of a minority swath of the left that has shifted in odd ways, similar to how Scarborough is representative of a minority swath of the right that has also shifted. 
or maybe had the rest of the right shift away from them. The point is to move beyond, you know, individuals or even these small groups to point out that it's actually the ground that is shifting beneath our feet quite a bit. There are elements of the far right and left that are going off the deep end a bit, though just to clarify, I wouldn't call it the far left that is going off the deep end because it's not about the distance left they've gone that's the problem. It's really just about how well or poorly they're handling the changes we're going through. I mean, I personally know communists who think that Taibi and his ilk are misguided and untrustworthy, but it's not because they've gone too far left. They've just lost grip of reality, not unlike the far right. And to be clear, I'm not coming close to equating these two either. The dum-dum left, as we'll call them, I didn't coin that term, is far, far out of power, which is actually much of the cause of their frustration, while the far right is extremely close to power as the base of supporters for Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, or Tucker Carlson, all of whom have a pretty good shot at the Republican nomination in 2024. So I think much of the evolution of the far right and the dum-dum left has to do with how people are responding to our institutions and larger economic system being broken. With this framing of broken institutions, including neoliberalism, it's easier to see why so many voters in 2016 were deciding between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. I mean, it was a mystery at the time, I remember, but Bernie was earnestly following his long-held beliefs that our institutions and economics were broken and needed reform while Trump paid cynical lip service to economic populism and criticized our broken institutions, but never had any plans to fix either one. So they weren't actually similar candidates, but they looked similar to some of the disaffected and disgruntled who were fed up with a broken system. So both movements stem from legitimate criticisms of broken institutions that are failing to support people through a particularly destabilizing moment in history as society shifts through things like the technological and internet revolution amid neoliberal cutting of social safety nets. But these two movements come to very different conclusions about what should be done about it. And then because the right answers to these problems don't actually work, then they throw in a bunch of uh, bigotry and racism as a scapegoat. So Trump's win bolstered the power of the far right while Bernie's loss fractured the left between the progressive left that Bernie himself actually represented and the dum-dum left that grew out of the self-destructed and misguided Bernie or bust movement that Bernie himself disavowed. So in conclusion, in this extremely short commentary on what is obviously a much, much larger topic— Things are complicated and getting more so. Lots of people are beginning to see the problems with our institutions as well as many of the underlying assumptions upon which our entire society is built. And yet very few people are coming to the same conclusions as one another. So it's important to be careful who you listen to and whose opinions you trust. I've certainly noticed my job getting harder over the past several years as ideologies and perspectives have been put in a sort of blender and people who I used to be able to trust I can't, and people who I never thought I would trust started saying relatively reasonable things. Now, I, I think we may be in a bit of an ideological gold rush as the old system crumbles and differing ideas struggle to be born and gain widespread adoption. Just as in capitalism, there are many hucksters and scammers trying to cash in, as well as plenty of true believers who start with very reasonable concerns but come to catastrophic conclusions. 
So in order to make sense of this changing world, I think we need new frames to see these new emerging patterns. I think that the bonus clip today discussing brokenism versus status quoism, I think that that's a, a framing that's a good one. It's a good start, but it's not the only one. So there's definitely more work to be done. And if you want to do a deeper dive into another aspect of this same phenomenon, I just read a long piece from Vanity Fair called Inside the Dissident Fringe, where the new right meets the far left and everyone's bracing for apocalypse. I think that article touches on a lot of concepts that we're going to be unpacking for a long time to come. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail, as always, or you can now send us text messages through SMS, WhatsApp, or Signal, all with the same number, 202-999-3991, or you can keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And you can continue the discussion by joining our Discord community. There is a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.